Welcome to Hospitals in Focus from the Federation of American Hospitals. Here's your host, Chip Kahn. Welcome to a special edition of Hospitals in Focus. I recently had the opportunity to sit down for a fireside chat with one of the few lawmakers to ever hold leadership positions in both the United States Senate and House, Senator Roy Blunt. It was a wide-ranging, informative discussion where we talked about everything from Medicaid expansion to the growing partisan divide in Washington, D.C. After serving more than 25 years in Congress and nearly 50 years in public service, Senator Blunt has a unique perspective on where we are today and where health policy is headed in the future. This was recorded last month during the Federation's Board of Governors meeting. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as our audience did. We have a real uh, treat uh, this afternoon with our special guest, uh, Senator Roy Blunt uh, from Missouri. I've known the senator for many, many years, and uh, he always has been, actually in this position I have today and in other positions previously, he's always been very open and willing to listen and uh, really just a good good friend over the years. Uh, to give you a little background, he's almost in his 50th year of public service, going back to 1973 uh, when he was appointed a county clerk in Green County in Missouri. Um, he was uh, Secretary of State. He was a congressman for many years and was elected to the Senate in 2010. There aren't many senior members of either party, I think, who have served in the kind of roles that he served in in both chambers and frankly had the length of service that he has. So I, I hope this afternoon we can glean uh, uh, some, some, some lessons. And I thought, uh, Senator, to start off uh, and set some context, um, I, I might ask you, uh, you've seen a lot you know, in the House and Senate over the years, and you've spent much of your time as a leader in both. Uh, how, is the, how has the process changed? I'm gonna say from better to worse, but but how has it changed? But I, well, in your view, I, I think Chip, I I think better to worse. Though we have moments of inspiration where we still can respond and get things done. So I was elected to the Congress 25 years ago. Next month, two of my current colleagues in the Senate, Jerry Moran and uh, John Thune, were elected mm -hmm. at the same time, and we were all together at another event this weekend. And so we have. We've spent 25 years of this together in both the House uh, and, and the Senate. I, I, I do think 25 years ago and even 15 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, the Congress still had a predisposition to get things done. And frankly, the people we worked for had a much greater appreciation if you could get things done. You know, sometimes I think at home anymore that... Uh, uh, you get something major done and you're, the people you work for wonder, well, what did you have to do to get that done? You know, it's like somehow you've all sold out to the deep state uh, if you're able to get something done. And uh, so I've, I've gone through, you know, I was, when I was elected Secretary of State in Missouri, I was the first Republican to win that job in 52 years. And you very much did not run as a partisan in that environment because you weren't going to win if you did. You ran as somebody, if you elect me, I'll do this job. And after I get a chance to do this job, I'm going to constantly let you know how I did it and how I did it better for you than somebody else might have. 
And that was a pretty significant coin of the realm at that moment. That would have been 35 years ago. I think it was still the coin of the realm 25 years ago and 20 years ago. But, uh, you know, we've sort of fallen into this place to where so many people run for office and serve in office. And one of their major themes is, if I don't get exactly what I want, I'm not going to settle for anything less which in a democracy is a sure formula not to ever get anything. You know, in a democracy or in your family or at your church or wherever, if you're getting everything you want all the time, there is something wrong with you. And we have a lot of people now who not only do they run on that basis, but they go home and explain to everybody that uh, I didn't go along with any of it, you know. So I think that's probably the biggest single change at the same time Last year, when we dealt with the COVID crisis uh, in 19 and 20, mostly in 20, we passed five big bipartisan bills that were pretty innovative and didn't hit the target every time, but we didn't have time to hit the target every time. We were seeing if we could get things out there like the Paycheck Protection Plan, a totally new concept, um, some other things we may talk about later, uh, but even when we did that, you would still have even reporters ask you after you pass five bipartisan bills, uh, when are you guys going to start working together? These are reporters in the Capitol building every day who kind of miss it when when you do step up and do the right, do, do the things that you have to do in a democracy. But I think the biggest change is limited appreciation for how government functions or when it functions, and lots of willingness to talk about how, what an imperfect result it was, and because of that, somehow unsatisfactory. You sort of prompted a question, what do you think changed between the work in 2020 and, and the, Americ the, the American Rescue Act, and then what we see developing now, I'll sort of leave the infrastructure out for a moment. Uh, what's the contrast? Because in some ways, the American Rescue Act had some new things in it, but in some ways was building on what was done the previous year. Why did they choose, because it was their choice, mm -hmm. to go partisan with that ra rather than uh, uh, stay in this mode that you experienced in 2020? Well, I, I, I do a couple of things. One is I think that Democrats in Washington right now somehow have convinced themselves and did after the election that they had a mandate. And there's clearly no reason to believe that. I mean, the Senate couldn't possibly be closer than 50-50. The House has the smallest Democrat margin in 170 years. And the only thing that Joe Biden and Donald Trump agreed on in the presidential election was they both wanted it to all be about Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, you know, and how you take that and create this idea, we have a mandate for great change I don't know, though I do think they believe the lesson learned from the Obama administration was you're not going to be, you may not be in control for very long, and so you should do everything you possibly can while you're in control. And I actually think what's going to happen is it's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you do everything you possibly can, you won't be in control for very long because I don't think there's a mood in America for the extreme way they're they're going. And on the American Rescue Plan, 
what a what a lost opportunity for President Biden, who I think is has certainly a, a bipartisan inclination, if not a bipartisan voting record. What a great opportunity for him to step up and say, "Okay, we're going to just now do whatever we need to do to finish that bipartisan work from last year," as opposed to. We're, we're going to build on this in a way that establishes a foundation of, of, of this becoming all permanent, like the, the tax credit for everybody with kids. And, you know, I think that number is around every, every family that makes less than $150,000. So that's almost everybody with kids suddenly starts getting a check. And even though it was a check for a year, we're immediately six months later into the, well, we ought to make that check for a year, a check for the next five years, hmm. with a sense that if you can ever get that done, year six, it's year, year seven, it's almost impossible to imagine that that Congress wouldn't extend it hmm. uh, by another year. And so I, I think they've, one, I think they've misread their mandate, it, such as whatever it might have been. And, and two, I, th I think they've, They've misread the desire in the country to actually see some people work together. Well, in the bipartisan infrastructure bill, clearly in the Senate, many, many work mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's sort of sitting out there now with all this other work they're doing around it. Um, how do you see this playing out? Are they? Are, are, do you think they have a formula to make it successful? Because, as you say, they have the, a razor-thin uh vote margin, despite the fact that they have this notion of mandate. Well, you would think it would it get, gets harder all the time for them to get anything done. Clearly, the president's not nearly in the position he was in six months ago, and maybe not in the position he was in six weeks ago. And it does seem to me, you know, I know Speaker Pelosi on one of the Sunday shows a month ago was talking about how we need to rally around the president's vision. I'm not sure if you're a moderate Democrat in a district that President Trump carried, and I think there are about 19 of them, that this would be exactly the time that that rally around the president's vision is where you want to be. I think they're maybe maybe six months late or six weeks late, at least, on, on that. I hope we can salvage the, the regular infrastructure bill Four years of Trump, we were always going to infra big infrastructure spending next. It was kind of the great white whale of the Trump administration. And frankly, eight years of Obama, we didn't do anything extraordinary in infrastructure. We, we just sort of done the minimal in a country that is incredibly benefited by our ability to trade all over the world and have be interconnected to each other. Location really matters to us, but it doesn't matter if you don't do what it takes for that location to work. Highways, roads, bridges, ports, airports, all those things that anybody that travels know, knows we're behind on. And uh, here's a real opportunity to not get way ahead, but at least do substantially more than we'd be doing otherwise. Uh, one of the things that I, I guess was rumored a few days ago, um, because you've, you had the controversy over the debt ceiling and then you've got the Democratic uh, voter rights initiatives, there was sort of this threat um, that they would uh, pull the plug on the filibuster. Right. Um, what, from your view, 
I guess, let me ask a dual question, sort of, in, in this day and age, what role and what's the importance of the filibuster? And then two, do, do you think it is seriously threatened at this time? Well, I, I think that Leader McConnell thought it was threatened last week. Uh, he, his view, which I'm not sure I share, but there's no way to know mm-hmm. if it's ever, it was right or not, is that this maybe was the one moment where our two stalwarts on the other side, Manchin and Cinema, would decide, uh, okay, if the Republicans aren't going to help us to see that the government pays its bills, maybe we're going to have to change the rules for this one thing. And you can't change the rules for one thing. Um, two reasons for it. One is probably just you can't reverse the parliamentarian and do that in a targeted way. And even if you could, if you ever change the the, the cloture rule in the Senate, and I'll talk more about that in a second. If you ever change the cloture rule in the Senate for, say, paying the bills the government owes money to, uh, why would you then not change it to protect our democracy? Or why would you not change it to do whatever is the next thing that con- to, to save the, the, the planet? It w- was it more important to pay people money that the government owed money to than it is to save the planet? You just, it won't work that way. We used to have a rule when I was the whip in the House, and, and only two people, you mentioned this, only two people in the history of the country have been elected leaders in both the House and Senate. And I'm one of them, so it must not be a very smart thing to have been willing to do. Uh, when I was the whip in the House, we had in the House, there was a rule called the motion to recommit. And on every bill, you have a chance that goes through the regular process to send it back to committee to do X. And X usually sounded pretty good. Send it back to committee to add this to it. And, you know, my, my rule is the whip, and generally the rule in the House had been, if you never vote for one of these, it, you've, it's fine. Because you say, no, that was just a procedural thing to kill the bill. But if you ever voted for one of them, what about the next thing that comes along? Is it less important than, you know, you vote for Second Amendment issue one day and the next day the motion to recommit is about the the value of motherhood. And so you're for the Second Amendment, but you're not for the value of motherhood. You can't go down that line. You can't, you can't, you can't, I don't think you can ever selectively eliminate the supermajority in the Senate that shouldn't be overused, but it's there. And and why does it define the Senate? The cloture rule, where it takes 60 votes to begin a debate and 60 votes to end a debate, the cloture rule really requires you to find friends on the other side. You know, the Democrats, two or three times in the history of the country, have had more than two-thirds of the Senate. Republicans have never had more than 56 popularly elected Republican senators. That's our all-time high. And the Democrats haven't had many more than that very many times. So what that rule does is it, it makes you seek out people on the other side that you don't agree with on everything, but you do agree with on at least one thing. And so, you know, I could go down, uh, Senator... Uh, Stabenow and I, uh, Debbie Stabenow from Michigan, have done a lot of work on mental health, treating mental health like all other health. Chris Coons and I, every year, reauthorize the Victims of Child Abuse Act, 
even though oddly the Obama administration tried to eliminate it two times. And, and, but we, we do that. Uh, Sherrod Brown, who I've known for 35 years, and we've, we've agreed on exactly five things in 35 <laughs> years, and they're all federal law. Hmm. And everything from a bill we did on advanced manufacturing to all women who have breast cancer surgery have to be told all their options. Hmm. And the, you know, it's, we have to have a pretty strong, wide expanse hmm. to find at five things we agree on. But, you know, it makes you better friends. We've been friends for 35 years. But once you pass that first bill together, you think, well, let's find something else we can do together. And there's a much longer list of those members than I just went through. And I think it, it does define the Senate. It also means if you have to have a super majority in the Senate, the country really has to feel pretty strongly about something for quite a while. You know, if you look at the House, often, usually, often these things don't become law because of the Senate, but there'll be an election and the House majority changes and three or four major bills pass that would head you in a really different direction uh, and they die in the Senate because the Senate wasn't impacted by the very last election like the House was. And by the time you get through two or three Senate cycles, countries usually change its mind. Uh, and so, you know, we're not radically going this way and then radically coming back the other way. And I think the, the cloture rule, the filibuster rule in the Senate has developed, not sure it's what exactly what the founders thought would happen, but it developed in a way that it, it almost requires the country to think a little bit about what it believes it wants to do and before you actually wind up doing it. From the standpoint of outsiders, and this, I guess things like the filibuster are sort of inside game. Uh, so the, the filibuster really is important, I think, to the business community, uh, to groups like ours, because I think we, we're all better off if legislation right. it, it takes time and, and has deliberation. Um, is there anything we can do, or, or do you think this is such a high political uh, issue that, it, that it's... Uh, uh, you know, it, it, if it goes one way or the other, it's it, it the outside can't affect it. It's it, it's just the internal politics that rule the, rule the Senate that'll determine what happens. Well, no, I, I think there surely is a way that you can encourage people in in the Senate to not want to see that rule mm -hmm. change. One is it does give every senator a little more power than you would have otherwise. It particularly it protects the rights of the minority. Uh, and, you know, th th that may be the one genius of our system is that we have figured out how you, uh, unlike a parliamentary system where you just run over the other side when you're in control, we have figured out how we have this, this non-parliamentary system where the, the minority continues to have a right to be heard and even a, a right to be involved. And, you know, the truth is, Chip, it really doesn't take very much to get 10 of our side. If you want to work with us just a little bit, I don't think it's that hard to do. But when you start out like we have this year with, we're going to do whatever we want to do and we're going to do it all by ourselves because there are 50 that we could possibly do within the, the rules of uh, relate to spending or raising money, which is the only way you can use reconciliation. Uh, we're going to do that, 
so like last week on the, or two weeks ago on the debt ceiling, you know, the press, knowing I've done this for a while and I've been involved in the debt ceiling fights before, well, what would it take for you to vote to raise the debt ceiling? And um, I said, I'd, you know, if you could, you could find a reconciliation bill that 10 of my side would be for, and I wouldn't have to be one of them, <laughs> I'd be willing to raise the debt ceiling. Yeah. You know, if you could moderate the way forward in a way that there's some bipartisan buy-in, I don't have to be one of the 10 people that would be buying in for me to think that was a, enough of a progress mm -hmm. that, well, maybe we can now talk about the debt. And on that issue... You know, the debt ceiling until 2011, and we're the only country that has a debt ceiling. There's, there's, you could argue there's not much virtue in the debt ceiling. <laughs> uh, but until 2011, we always raised the debt ceiling to an amount. And you didn't have a date. You just kind of guessed how long that might take you. And at some point, the Secretary of the Treasury would say, we're within six months of getting to the debt ceiling. And that, that, that in and of itself held spending down some. Mm -hmm. And then in 2011, the, um, and, and uh, they decided the, the decision was made by the Obama administration and Democrats in the Senate. We're going to just suspend the debt ceiling to a date certain. And of course, in that world, you can, anything you can spend between then and the date certain becomes the mm. new debt ceiling. And um, we, we at least last week got, for the first time in 10 years, to vote on an amount of money that would be the debt ceiling instead of some date out there somewhere that would be the debt ceiling. President Biden, who, by the way, twice in the Bush years voted against the debt ceiling, and mm -hmm. so did Schumer, the debt ceiling increase. If the debt ceiling doesn't generate a discussion about future spending, I don't know what purpose it possibly mm. serves. Uh, you can say all you want to about, well, the debt ceiling's about the money we've already spent. The debt ceiling debate has never been about the money we've already spent. It's always about what we're going to, let's, now let's talk mm. about what we're going to spend in the future. So Nancy Pelosi in uh, 2019, the Speaker of the House, Speaker Pelosi, said, I'm not going to help raise the debt ceiling. Remember, she controls one of the, one of the things that would do this, I'm not going to help raise the debt ceiling unless you, unless the Trump administration agrees to spend more money. And Secretary Mnuchin began to come down every couple of weeks for about, about six weeks until they finally agreed to spend $19 billion more dollars than we were going to spend otherwise. So the debt ceiling is always about future spending as opposed to, well, we you helped you helped figure out how to spend the money. Now you have to join us in the the debt ceiling, raising the debt ceiling. That that's the, the if the debt ceiling serves any purpose at all, it's to talk about future spending. Under Obama, when we had some say in it, we got budget caps for ten years, and the budget caps sometimes we had to raise them, just like the time I just mentioned when the Democrats could and did insist we raise them, but they were there to have to be raised. So they clearly held down spending in that 10 years, just like Speaker Pelosi's insistence that we spend 
19 billion more dollars domestically than we would have spent the last time we raised the debt ceiling. Talked about future spending, not how much money we'd spent in the past. So the talking about uh, the evolution of the, the body, um, maybe it's mythological, but my sense was decorum was important in the past. And, and I was a little surprised that uh, the leader on the Democratic side didn't just say thank you and move on mm-hmm. the other day, instead seemed to have to uh, make a deal, a big deal out of what happened. What, what, how, did that, how does that affect the chemistry of the body uh, from your view? Not helpful. Not helpful. And, you know, I've served in both the House and Senate, and I think relationships matter a lot more in the Senate. Now, I was the whip almost the whole time I was in the House, and we had little margins, so I had I was constantly working to figure out which Democrats could help us on which issues. And I had pretty good relate I had pretty good bipartisan relationships there. But I think generally people that come to the Senate from the House find out that you know, you, you do have some dependency on each other because of the rules. Every senator can slow down things by objecting to not giving consent. Uh, and relationships really matter. And I think we were all hopeful that uh, after the Reed-McConnell relationships, that the McConnell-Schumer relationships would be better, and they don't seem to be. In some areas, I, I guess this is, you know, has a disappointing uh, result in the area of policing, for example, there was negotiation, but it, it seems like in, in an area that's so sensitive and, and, and gets to some of the divisions in the country that it would have been, you know, wonderful for some action. And it just seems like they, they haven't been able to come together. What, it, what can break the ice on? Well, it, it does. But again, let's go back to my earlier observation. COVID certainly broke the ice. Mm. And we had five big bipartisan bills with some really uh, in a, good ideas in them that led to things like uh, more testing. You know, Senator Alexander and I came up with this uh, this suggestion for that. We called it the Shark Tank, to where and they we went for moved forward with the Shark Tank, uh, and of the groups that went through the Shark Tank, some were already existing companies, some were five people with a mm-hmm. new idea. Uh, two million tests are being uh, produced every day through the Shark Tank that have nothing to do with all the tests that are being produced otherwise by other companies who are already producing tests. And 100% of all of the home tests come, came through the Shark Tank um, idea. And what might be good about that, Chip, was that because of the way that worked the in healthcare, the federal government in this testing area became a more intertwined partner. The, you know, the Shark Tank group in that of the 31 companies or groups that finally came out of the Shark Tank and got a couple of billion dollars of direct investment, the sharks kept swimming with them hmm. through the whole thing. And that may be why if we move to uh, advanced research for health, which the president wants to do and I want to help on, we, we've sort of set up a trial as uh, how that might work to where unlike NIH that I'm for, and I've made a big commitment over the years to NIH, 
Uh, but unlike the National Institute of Health, where you give people a grant and say, we'll check in with you every once in a while and see how you're doing, and in five years, we hope you have a result, this would be like a Shark Tank-like environment to where you zero in on one or two things that have great imminent promise and importance and, and then move forward in a partnership. That was a pretty good idea that came out of a bipartisan effort. Some of the things we tried work, some didn't. You know, I, I think the, the, the government still moves forward when it has to, though it's not as... Another thing I'll say here while I'm thinking about this too, there's so much diversification of media out there right now. Not only do people come with their own opinions to an argument, they come with their own facts. And uh, it was a lot easier to come to a conclusion when you had different opinions and one set of facts than we had different opinions and different sets of facts. And I, I'm sure all of you have been in these discussions, either casual discussions at, after work or uh, whenever, or, or at work, where somebody is abs where one side is absolutely convinced that your facts are not the real facts, and their facts are because they just read them on the internet or they were in on MSNBC this morning or Fox News last night, and I think that's made a big difference generally in the way we deal with each other on lots of levels, and that's reflected in the Congress. Let, let me talk a minute about just a, a Missouri issue. Um, in 2020, the voters voted to expand uh, Medicaid to the ACA mm -hmm. groups. And, mm -hmm. you know, from a hospital standpoint, this kind of coverage is critically important because it, for low-income people, it removes the, the financing issue, which happen, you know, which is, becomes important when they walk in the hospital. We want to care for them. Um, and I guess the state lawmakers, in their wisdom, chose to not move forward. I guess the court, the circuit court now has, has said, said the state should. Uh, how do you see this evolving, and and what do you what do you hear from constituents on this? What do you think their attitude is uh, about this sort of back and forth on this issue? I don't know that constituents have a strong view on this issue, and it would depend totally on how you presented it. Mm -hmm. You know, the federal government put out a huge inducement to states to to cover more people, largely largely single adults, and many states did that and others didn't. I didn't get too involved. I don't give a, try not to give a lot of advice to people in Jefferson City until we've solved all of our problems here. And so that probably means I won't be in the advice-giving business. But <laughs> I, I, I do think while there are some problems of a, an initiative process that determines how you're going to spend state money, because that money has to come from somewhere, that in this case, it is what people voted to do. Frankly, because of the over-assistance to, to state governments that the Congress insisted on and got even worse in the Build Back Better or whatever, yeah. the American Rescue Plan, they've got enough money to do this. And uh, I think the problem, frankly, will be getting people to sign up. Mm -hmm. 150, 200,000 people that could sign up. And even though the sign-up process has been going on for a long time, only 17,000 mm. people have signed up. Uh, so that's that's probably a bigger challenge for s both state governments and healthcare providers 
to get people qualified into the system, and particularly people qualified into the system that have some access to health care before they show up in your emergency room. And uh, so I, I, I believe if voters have decided, I understand the legislative concern of where does this money come from? Where does our 10% come from? It's come from higher education. It's come from elementary and secondary education. Does it come from parents as teachers? Where does it come from? It's a legitimate thing for them to be concerned about. Uh, but uh, I think they're moving forward now. And now the, the bigger concern for our health, for our providers will probably be how do we get people qualified to where they, they get services. And that leads me to another thought, which is telemedicine. And, you know, the, 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 another thing that COVID forced us to do, and we did through legislation, was to do something we probably should have done five years ago, maybe even a little earlier than that, of telemedicine. But the fear at HHS and CMS was, well, if people can go to the doctor more easily, they'll go to the doctor more often, and that will cost us a lot of money. One, I, I think people decide that there's a lot to be said for being able to go to the doctor more easily. And two, I think there's some development of the view that if people go to the doctor more often, it might cost you less money because they don't only, only go up to the doctor, only go to the doctor when there's a crisis that could have been prevented. And figuring out how to be sure we keep telemedicine into this, in the system and also being sure that we adapt to it in a way that meets concerns about legis about about uh, licensure and certification. You know, every one of you have hospitals on the border of some other state, and we really have hospitals in you know we seven states touch Missouri. No state but Tennessee has that many states that touch it. People that drive from elevation centers are right on the edge of the state in most cases. And people that drive from Illinois to St. Louis to get health care, that's not a problem. But if suddenly the St. Louis, Missouri doctor is giving telehealth care to somebody in Illinois or Kentucky or Iowa, do we have a system that really accommodates that? So Senator Murphy, another Democrat that I'm finding one thing I can work with, and I have a bill, the TREAT Act, that I think is too short term and that it was largely designed to work during the pandemic. Uh, but we need to be thinking of how telemedicine creates maybe new liability that unnecessary if we'll figure out how to deal with it. Uh, but I, I think telemedicine is definitely here to stay. I hope it is. And, you know, telebehavioral health, maybe even more bring that behavioral health professional closer, to, who's, who's often further away from you than your primary health provider is, even even closer to you, uh, to you than it has been before. And I think people are going to look for new ways to make telehealth available to people it's less available to now. But the healthcare disparities we saw during COVID are real as well. And telehealth, if we can eliminate the the disparities of broadband, uh, telehealth can be one of the things that can help eliminate uh, some of those disparities, I think, particularly for rural health issues and for inner, inner city health issues. Senator, as we, I guess we're getting to the end now, uh, as we close out, uh, 
what, and unfortunately for us, as you get closer to the end of your career uh, in the Senate, what do you see as your legacy of, of the 25 years in Washington and the 50 years almost in public service? Well, I would, I would want to hesitate. Has, I would want to point out I was 23 when I first became a county <laughs> official. So 50 years of public service does sound like a lot, doesn't it? Um, you know, two or three things. One is uh, when I became the chairman of the committee that uh, funds health and education and labor, um, NIH, the National Institute of Health, hadn't had an increase in over a decade, not a penny. We've increased it 43% in the six years that I was chairman of that committee. And I think we're, we've got a pattern going where we'll increase it again this time, maybe by a, a new record number, which would be fine with me. And healthcare is changing so quickly. Uh, and with no increase, particularly young researchers were just deciding to do something else. But healthcare is changing so quickly, the opportunity to be part of immunotherapy and microbial research and all of those things that a decade ago nobody was talking about, really important. I do think working as we have to try to make behavioral health treated like all other health, and we're making real headway there. And I guess on the Intel side, I've been on the Intel Committee, House and Senate, this is the daily terrifying work of being on that committee in ways that you can never really share with anybody. But I would say trying now to as quickly as we can to advance uh, artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning. The only way we're going to, our, our, our adversaries, particularly China, are moving very rapidly there. And I'm trying every week to be part of the the butt-kicking operation that continues to talk about how important it is that we don't lose our advantage that we've had since World War II in all of those areas. And once we lose that advantage, you know, our technical advantage has really been uh, the asset we had that allowed us to be who we've been for the last 75 years. Well, Senator, thank you so much for spending so much time with us. And uh, uh, this has been a Great conversation. I, I, I'm sure the audience enjoyed it and really appreciate your perspective. Thank you. Great to be with all of you. Thanks for listening to Hospitals in Focus from the Federation of American Hospitals. Learn more at FAH.org. Follow the Federation on social media at FAH Hospitals and follow CHIP at ChipCon. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Hospitals in Focus. Join us next time for more in-depth conversations with healthcare leaders.